Inspiring stories, important topics. Welcome to Passion in Action from Vitas Healthcare. Hi, I'm Diane Paceres, and this is Passion in Action. Every day, those who work in hospice see patients and families who are going through some of the most difficult time of their life. At VTOS, our dedicated team members are passionate about making the time in everyone's life easier by providing exceptional care and comforting support. They do this by effectively communicating with families, treating patients with respect, and offering emotional and spiritual support. On today's episode, I'll be joined by team manager Nikhil Hayden and patient care administrator Cheryl Hayes. Together, we'll discuss how they utilize these behaviors to make a difference in the lives of patients and their families. Welcome, Nikhil and Cheryl. How are you today? Great. Hi, Diane. Great. Morning, Diane. Good morning. I'm super excited to have you both here with us today. It's really a joy to be able to hear from each of you as it relates to your day-to-day and what you do. And so I'm sure that our listeners will feel the same. That said, before we get started on our main topic, I'd love to hear from each of you what inspired you to actually do your work in hospice. Nikhil, is it okay if we start with you? Sure. I believe it's a calling. Actually, I was doing something completely different in ICU, and then God wanted me to make a lift and to come to hospice. And I really feel like it speaks to me wanting to be a bridge over troubled waters for our patients and families here. And that's really what causes me to do what I do every day. Outstanding. How about yourself, Cheryl? Yeah, I agree with Nikhil. I also was an ICU nurse came to a crossroads where I had to make a change from being at the bedside, actively at the bedside, and got this opportunity in hospice. It's a calling. I thought I had a calling to do nursing, but hospice is a true calling. And my first patient that I interacted with, that was it for me. I was hooked at that point. Wonderful. That's so heartwarming to hear from both of you. That said, so our main topic today is making a difference as a hospice nurse. So we'd love to hear from each of you, what do you feel is the most important support that you offer a patient and their caregiver each day? Okay. I would say my greatest gift is really my team because we have an inpatient unit here. And so that allows us to be able to take care of patients and families around the clock. So it allows us to meet them where they are, but provide constant education, reassurance, let them know that we're holding their hand. We're explaining the process of what's going on when patients are turning imminent, the signs and symptoms that they need to look for, how we need to manage it, how we can navigate any psychosocial issues they have, and also help with the spiritual side as well with our chaplain. Wonderful. Cheryl, what would you like to add to that? So as a patient care administrator, I have home teams and I also have continuous care under my umbrella. So everything from routine visits to like Nikhil with 24-hour care at the bedside at those critical times they really need us. And I think the main thing, like Nikhil said, is supporting them, ensuring that they understand at this time that we're there to really care for them head to toe, clinically, emotionally, psychosocially. I really have the benefit of supporting our families when they first come on and they just need intermittent visits all the way to when they're imminent and they really need us 24 hours around the clock at that imminent time. But 
really ensuring that they're a big part of the choices they want for themselves at that time and ensuring that our team ensures that the families understand we're there to support them. You know, each of you provide such incredible support for folks when they're at the most challenging time in their lives. How do you go about really assessing what support that patient and their families are in need of so that you can accommodate their individual needs? Let's start with you, Cheryl. I always start with, and again, on the administrator side, a big part of my job is educating our staff. How are they relating to the patients in the field? What are they saying? How are they communicating to the families and patients so that they understand why we're there, how we can help? But I think we start at a base level with everything that we can offer. And then from there, individualize that plan. You know, some of our patients really need us clinically, at least initially. We have a lot of patients that come from the hospital and they're very acutely ill and they need a lot of services in the beginning. Some patients are kind of okay at home in the beginning and they really need more support. They need more resources. How can they get more help into the home? So maybe they need spiritual guidance at that point more than they need clinical intervention at that point. So really assessing each patient and family individually so that we can address their needs individually. Nikhil, what would you like to add to that? I actually agree with Cheryl. I mean, communication and our very first interactions with our patients and families is key because, number one, we have to meet them where they are and understand what is their understanding of actual hospice. Do they understand where their loved one is? And then also what services we can provide for them because some of them, they're scared. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's happening. Some people, this is the first time they've ever experienced someone dying and they don't know how to take that. So we have to be able to understand their emotions, their feelings, help them, whether it's going to be clinically with myself or the physician, evaluating how we can help them. Also the psychosocial piece, because some of them don't know how they're going to pay for funeral arrangements. They don't know how they're going to eat. And then other times it's spiritual, because even for the patients and families, there are years of things that we may need to unpack before the patient passes. And those are things that we're able to provide. Sometimes it's knowing what is their final wishes. What do they want to accomplish before they pass? You know, each of you just mentioned a lot because you support in many, many ways. And if you could narrow it down to the one thing, the one area that you feel you make the biggest impact, the biggest difference for your patient and their families, what would that be? Cheryl? I think for me, Diane, is ensuring that the communication factor of what we do is refined and to the point. Understanding we've got to take the walls down for our patients, just like Nikhil said, if we think about their last one to two years of their lives and navigating the healthcare system, there's a lot of walls up due to that journey. And at the same time, while we are going to tell our families what we can do to help them. We have to be transparent about what we can or cannot do so that we take those obstacles down immediately and we can direct them to the resources that can help. It's that communication piece and ensuring that the families understand that we're communicating timely and effectively, that expectations are done so that everyone understands where we're at, so that we're always striving to meet those expectations. I think we can only do that with good communication. For sure. Nikhil, how about yourself? I think that's an excellent answer because it does begin with communication. 
You have to understand the expectations of the families and patients and meeting them, having that one-on-one communication at the very beginning, knowing what their care plans are so you could actually detail it to that patient and family so that we can exceed their expectations because we don't want to make promises that we can't keep because we don't want a failure because we didn't communicate that in the very beginning. I love the passion that both of you are exuding regarding communication. That said, what do you think the impact of great communication has on the overall hospice experience for that patient and their family members? I think it's everything, Diane, from that first interaction all the way till even after our patients pass, because we do continue with bereavement for our families. But that communication piece, when I talk to families who maybe there was some type of opportunity for us to do better, when you break it down, many, many times, I would say most times, it comes down to there was a communication piece missing somewhere. And our families and patients sometimes are not always happy with the communication point that we are giving them because it's out of our scope of hospice. It's something maybe we cannot meet their expectation on. However, I have found that even if they're not the happiest, they do understand that we built a relationship together. They trust that we respect what they're bringing to the table because we've had good communication and that we're here to really navigate that journey now or that path because we have open communication. I really think of all of the things that we do every step of the way, every clinician, everybody that has an interaction with that patient and family. It really does boil down to communication. I think you're spot on, spot on. Nikhil, how about yourself? What would you add to that? Other than communication, just our compassion for caring for patients and families because it comes from the heart. That's why it's a calling. And I really feel like when we do that with our communication, with the care that we give, Our patients and families know things happen, but because of the relationship and rapport that we built for them, they understand that it's coming from the heart, that we understand and that they are heard. And being an attentive listener is another key component because you have to understand where they are because you can gather a lot of information while you're assessing based on you just listening because sometimes they just need an ear. Sometimes they're overwhelmed. They don't know which way to turn. And that allows you to be able to direct what they need and also provide them some encouragement to say, I know you've never done this before, but we got this. We can do it together. I'm here with you. So playing off of that in your listening skills that you're actually applying when you're with the patients and their families, each patient, each caregiver, I'm sure has a different style of communication. How do you actually assess their needs so that you can appropriately adjust as needed and ensure that get the level of communication they need. Nikhil, I'll start with you. In our very first meeting, understanding where the patients and families are, because sometimes you do have some that are medical professionals, so you need to speak to them in the medical profession terms because that's what they're used to hearing. But other ones, you need to dissect it down and you may need to go slower. You may need to explain step by step on this is where we are, this is what's next, this is what's going to happen. But also providing them tools such as us leaving information of knowledge of the education that we're providing to say, okay, I'm training you in this. But follow up to say, okay, we've talked about the medications. How are we going to give these? When is the timetable? But also understand to be flexible because they may not 
be able to be ready to receive. And that's something else you have to be able to assess when you're talking to the patients and families. And that's like another key component is meeting them where they are, because sometimes they're grieving and they're not ready to receive everything that you have to say. So you kind of have to take it at bite-sized pieces sometimes just so that they can have time to just breathe. Cheryl, how about yourself? Yeah, Nikhil, great. I think we were built from the same background. I agreed with everything Nikhil said, and I'm a big advocate of intentional listening, giving them the space to and acknowledge that we're listening. We hear you along the way as they're telling us what's going on, using open-ended questions so that you ensure you understand and they feel that, that you are understanding what it is they're trying to say. And also, I think And I remind my staff of this too. We have to give a lot of grace to our patients and families. I know the old saying, you put yourself in their shoes, but we do have to give a little bit of grace to these patients and families because understanding now they're here with hospice. Again, where have they been the past possibly year or two in their lives? And now they're here. We don't always know even ourselves how we're going to react to that situation. So we just have to take each situation, take a deep breath, stabilize yourself listen intently and give some grace to the person who's giving you that message so that you can have a clear mind to really understand where that's coming from and assure them that you're there to help and together you'll figure it out. Such great comments and so insightful. So I'm sure with all that you just both mentioned that there's an ongoing process or key best practices that each of you have implemented to just ensure that those patients and their family members are well-informed and that they always have their questions answered. Can you share maybe a best practice or two of things that you might do each and every time just to make sure of that? Nikhil? One of the things that we really do, we have a motto here, which is called Be the Light. And that is allowing us to, before you go into a room, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath, stabilize yourself, leave whatever you may have going on outside the room. And then when you step in there, your patient and family has your undivided attention to where when you are meeting with the families, have a seat. Say, would it be okay if I have a seat and talk to them and see what concerns they have. This is what's going on with your loved one. This is what we've done last night. This is what the plan will be for today. You know, myself or the doctor will be in to make rounds. This is what you can expect. But then also, how can we help you? What things are you struggling with? And then it allows us to be able to tailor every need for that patient and family specifically to them. But we also as a team, because we're all here, it allows us to have an ongoing everyday interaction with each other. So that really does allow us to have eyes and ears all around, but also to be able to help at that moment so that we can help alleviate some of the things that's going on and just allow them to enjoy the time that they have left. Cheryl, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, my focus is more in the home and in the home team. So, you know, of course, we have our clinicians, all our disciplines are going to visit our patients at home. So I agree with Nikhil. Yes, we have a clinical job to do. We've got to do all the things. We've got to document all of our clinical documentation, assess the patient, make medication changes, collaborate with the physician. But beyond that, right, the visit also has to include other components. Sit down with your patient and family after the visit. Talk to them about what you just spoke with the doctor about. You got to reserve a little bit of time 
maybe 15, 20 minutes at the end of your visit to really sit down and talk to them. What challenges are you having? Maybe I come here once a week or twice a week. In between that time, what are you dealing with? Have an open conversation. And I think a big part too is asking them before you leave, is there anything else I can do for you at this point? And you're not going to have all the answers. It's a very independent job out there in the homes. You're out there, you're making the business by yourself. If there's something you can't tackle, you have a whole team, team managers, PCAs, GMs. We have a very open door policy at this program. You can call anyone at any time. Don't hold on to it because, again, we're kind of delaying that communication to our patients and families. Just escalate it and let your team help you work through that so that our families feel like we're really doing our best to address their needs. And I'm sure these discussions can be difficult, particularly when they're sharing their fears or their concerns. How do you make sure that both the patient and their caregiver feel heard when they're expressing those things. If you're new to hospice, this is new for you too. Making sure that the resources we have that are more comfortable with those conversations are included in that personal plan of care for the patient. Our chaplains, our social workers are built to have these types of conversations. So I really think ensuring that everyone understands the team approach to ensuring that our families feel open to sharing this with us so that we can be there for them. Makes sense. Nikhil, any best practices you want to share on how you make sure they feel heard? Well, actually, I think Cheryl made an excellent point. It is a team effort because even as a team manager, there are some things that I may not know. So I may have to contact my PCA and or the GM and say, you know, I've come across this I've never experienced this. How can we make this possible? Is this something that we can make possible? Because I really think that setting the precedence in the very beginning of what we can and can't do really does help alleviate the stress of the families and patients, but also being transparent and understanding where they are. Because a lot of them have never been in this situation before and they're scared. That takes a lot of power and trust in us. And we don't take that lightly. Demonstrating respect to the patients, the family, and anyone else that you are interacting with on a regular basis within that household. I would imagine that's incredibly important. But why do you feel that demonstrating respect is so important? Nikhil? I believe demonstrating respect also shows that you're providing dignity that you're acknowledging if there's any cultural differences, language differences, you're acknowledging all that by providing respect. Because sometimes whether you're in the home, you're in the room, there are certain things that you may not be privy to in some families. Depending on what's going on, you're going to deal with the grandmother versus the wife or the husband. It just has different entities. But you acknowledging that and showing respect compassion, empathy. It allows you to be able to be a better provider, but it also allows them to receive your teaching and the education and direction better because they understand that your loved one is going to get the care, respect, dignity, but we're also going to really pull you in and allow y'all to be a part. We're all doing this together. We're a team, the family, the patient, and us. Cheryl, why do you think demonstrating respect is so very important? I think demonstrating respect, even thinking about ourselves, we all want to feel that regardless of where we're coming from, it could be cultural, it could be whatever it is, 
then it doesn't play into whether I am still going to receive the same level of care as anyone else. I think it's the number one way to build trust with our patients. Many of our patients, we don't have a lot of time to do that. So again, respect and the way we communicate with our patients and families and letting them understand that it doesn't matter if you are living in an area that demographically, maybe you don't have a lot of funds compared to someone who is 10 miles away. You will still get the same quality of care. You will still have the same IDG members who are going to come and care for you. And I think it really does build that trust factor that we are there with the best intentions. I think that's what we want everyone to know. Our intentions are the best intentions. It doesn't matter who you are. So you mentioned earlier that you also provide emotional and spiritual support to patients. And so why is that element of your support, providing that emotional and spiritual support, so important in the overall care that you provide to the patient and their family? Nikhil? I believe it's a very pivotal point for some patients because some patients, I know, allow all their spiritual needs to be met because some have certain cultural practices that they would like, whether, you know, it's a sacrament of the sick, they want to be baptized. Some, we've done weddings. I mean, it just depends. But also some patients get to the end of life and they want to have conversations. Okay, this is where I am with my life. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. It allows us to increase the bond sometimes with the families because there have been rifts in between the families because things that have happened, but allows them to have closure. It allows them to be able to say things that they haven't said before, but it allows them also to heal. It gives us a starting place to be able to build on, but it also allows us to build trust. And I think having those conversations and having that piece available is very important. Very nice. Cheryl, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, as nurses, it's not what we do every single day anymore, but we know that our patients, they could be at the end of their lives, they're in a lot of pain. They don't know themselves anymore. And we know that those intangible things can mean a lot in the comfort and care of our patients. To Nikhil's point, we have patients who Maybe they weren't very spiritual except for when they were children. And now they really need that guidance and that direction for some closure and that comfort. So I think it's that intangible aspect that when we look at the patient and we're really offering our comfort to them, that we have to consider it's not always just medication driven. We have to really treat the entire person, mind and body, that adds to the mix for them and is so integral. So insightful. Both of your responses are just really compelling for folks as it relates to learning more about hospice and being in the hospice field because you do make such an incredible impact. So, you know, I'll say thanks first and foremost for sharing your thoughts on communications and respect and emotional and spiritual support that you both and your teams provide to our patients and their families and how that all really speaks to the fact that you both live our value of patients and family members come first each and every day. Is there an example that you'd like to provide to our audience of how you prioritize that particular value each and every day? Nikhil? 
I'd say allowing that conversation on what does it look like for the time they have left? What are goals? What are anniversaries? What are birthdays? What things are they trying to be here for? Sometimes it may be a mother that wants to leave letters for her children. It may be a wedding that hasn't happened yet, so we make that happen. It may be having a graduation here at the unit. It just depends on for the families what they need and the patient and how we can best navigate that so that they can make memories and so they can enjoy it. Maybe movie night. We've had that, for instance, in the unit with the family, with the mother that was dying. And so they would always have movie night. So we were able to get a projector, have popcorn, have all the kids here, the husband in the bed. And we just made a huge movie night. And, you know, to some people, it may not seem big, but it was huge for them because that was the last time they actually got to see their mother a lot. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Cheryl, what are your thoughts on how you prioritize that value each day? For my team, I always try to lead with, let's not say no. Let's take the no's off the table, understand where our patients and families are at, why they're asking us what they're asking us, and let's help them go down that path. Whether we're going to be the ones to actually help, let's really listen and understand Every single time there is a question and that from the patients and families point of view, we have good intentions. I truly believe no one has malintent ever. It's coming from a place of they really, truly are having a challenge. So always leading with, will this inevitably help benefit the patients and families? Makes a lot of sense. And so while you're coming at this from a different vantage point and leading a large team to make sure that what they do each and every day not only demonstrates our value of patients and families coming first, but also makes that patient and their family feel that way. And Nikhil, you and team being closer into the direct patient and family care, both of you are providing incredible support in what you do, no matter what place you play a role in. That said, how does VTOS support you both in your roles to do these things, Nikhil? I would say with effective communication, but also leadership, because I know that the PCA I have above me, of course, the GM, that they provide me with the skills, the tools that I need If it's things that I need, I don't have the answer for, they're available, but they support my autonomy. They understand the passion and drive that I have for my team and the direction I want to take them. And they are always monumental in that, that they support me on every level of that, but also being a force that's here because if things happen and they need to be here, they'll be here to support us. And they understand that. So having leadership support does make a huge difference and being able to do what I do every day. Cheryl, how about for yourself? Yeah, Nikhil, I feel the same way. This is a very large program that I work for in Miami-Dade. I think it's the largest in the country, but it feels very small. And I think it's due in large part to our leadership team, my GMs, my NPCA. They have never not wanted to be in the trenches with us. If we have a new initiative, they go to the same ITG meetings that I do. They're in it with us. They have an open door policy. 
I've called them on the weekends <laughs> when I'm on call. You know, there's always someone that will pick up the phone on the other end. And that's not just our GMs. That goes for our business directors and DMDs, the whole team, really, our medical directors. I try to show that to my teams as well. I attend IDGs weekly, new employees. I still go into the field with them and make field visits. I will wear my scrubs that day. Because I think it's important to show that you all came from the same place. And ultimately, we all have the same goal, which is to provide the best care for our patients and families. And it's important to be seen by everyone and for them to know that there's a lot of growth here as well. A lot of growth at BTUS. That's fantastic to hear that both of you feel that level of support from your leadership. So incredibly important. And it's also great to hear that you're jumping in with your teams and demonstrating that same level of support and leadership for your team. So that's awesome. Before we wrap up, we are planning on a segment that basically speaks to passion and action moments. And we would love to hear from each of you. What was one example of the most significant, memorable moment that you have had in your hospice career at VTOS? I'll start with Nikhil, if that's okay. I would say one of my memorable moments would be we actually had a wedding. And I don't think I was prepared for the extent of the wedding. I mean, I know we talked about it, but, you know, the team jumped in. The chaplain officiated it. They decorated the whole unit. We decorated the family room. We went around. We talked to the other families and asked them, would it be okay? Did they want to attend? So we had a huge wedding cake. We had photos. And, you know, we did it to where we were able to move the bed of the patient out into the hallway. So that way it could make it seem like as if they are walking down the aisle. And just to see the smiles on the family's faces when this was happening, because it was something they never thought was going to happen and being able to be a part of those memories that they had and just allowing them to laugh. They're at a wedding. They're getting married. They're enjoying. We're throwing rice, even though I feel like I was pulling rice from everywhere for the next two weeks. <laughs> But I mean, they laughed so much and they had so much fun and the family, it allowed them to just take a moment just to stop and enjoy where they were. And that is one of the things that I'll always remember. Cheryl, how about your memorable moment? Yeah, I've had so many moments, but I remember we had this patient, little older lady. She used to ride around in her little scooter around her neighborhood. She was all alone in the world, except for one son, but they didn't have a great relationship. So she was living down here in Miami, not in the best area. She would even leave her front door open from time to time to let the staff in. And she just wasn't in the safest position. But while we worked on trying to get her into a safer place, often she would call us and say, hey, could you bring me some KFC today? Or today I want to have Burger King. Or <laughs> And it was so positive to see that everyone who visited this lady brought her something to eat. They would sit with her. They would visit with her. At one point, her power got turned off and we really tried to get her to the ICU, but she was so independent. And, you know, I involved my GM. And by that night, we had paid the bill so that the power could be turned on and the AC could be turned on because it was in the middle of the summer in Florida. And it was so great to see all of our team members and even the team members that didn't belong to this team that would go and spend time with her and really understood the true heart of hospice. It's not your patient, it's not your caseload, but they still were there for this lady in every aspect. So heartwarming to see that. 
What great memorable moments. So thank you both for sharing. So one last question. If you were to offer advice to anyone who may be interested in pursuing a career in hospice, what would be that advice? Nikhil? I would say take a leap of faith because you do not know the blessings that you're missing out on. I mean, I know initially when I heard about it, I was like, what hospice? No. But once you cross over (laughs) and all the things that I've learned, how I've been blessed learning and growing and being able to experience it, it's like nothing that you'll feel. And it allows you to actually be a part of something bigger than you. Very nice. Cheryl, what advice would you offer? I would say, especially if you're in nursing and you're kind of in your unit, like Nikhil and I were, or you're on your floor and you're just kind of doing the steps, but you're just not getting what you really got into that field to do, which was really get to the heart of caring for patients other than just giving them their medications and their treatments. This is the place to be for you to feel as fulfilled as you want it to be when you first consider doing this in your life, truly. Wonderful. Well, ladies, you were absolutely incredible, and you have made this a fantastic podcast for our listeners, and I can't thank you enough, but I am going to thank you for your time and your energy and, again, everything that you said. It was very evident that it came directly from your heart. So thank you very much. Thank you, Diane. Thank you so much for having us. Nikhil, thanks for being a great partner. You too. Look, Angel Bob. That's all for this episode of Passion in Action. I want to extend a huge thanks to Nikhil and Cheryl for joining us today to discuss how they make a difference with VTOS. If you are inspired by their stories and interested in learning more about career opportunities at VTOS, please visit careers.vtos.com. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Passion in Action from VTOS Healthcare.